I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? is a WHRB original series in which I take a deep dive into the insights and experiences of Harvard alumni who have made an impact. They are trailblazers who have touched the world in ways that they could never have planned for, expected, or imagined when they were students. And now, they are eager to tell their unique stories for the benefit of current students and our wider community of listeners out there. This series is made possible by One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan, our production partner and sponsor. One in a Billion is a nonprofit educational media company whose mission is to foster Asian voices and deepen cross-cultural understanding through podcasts and film productions, blogs, and network events. One in a Billion's founder, Mabel Chan, is also a Harvard alum, class of 93, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She'll be joining us as a regular commentator and co-host on the podcast. In this episode, I am speaking with Sangu Delhi, an entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, and author who graduated from Harvard College in 2010 with a BA in African Studies and Economics. He received his JD and MBA from Harvard in 2016. Sangu's philanthropic proclivities and entrepreneurial energies date back to his years as a student at Harvard College. Back then, he founded the water and sanitation nonprofit Clean Aqua. Shortly thereafter, Sangu started Golden Palm Investments, or GPI, an investment holding company that builds world-class technology companies across the African continent. Sangu is also the author of Making Futures, a book about young entrepreneurs doing game-changing work in Africa. In today's show, Sangu and I speak about the invigorating and rewarding nature of his philanthropic projects on the African continent. Sangu also discusses his college days, revealing the excitement and complexity of starting his own business ventures at that early stage. But failure, too, is inevitable in all business plans, and Sangu has seen no exception to this rule. With me, Sangu talks about the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurship, about disappointment, and about the very real toll that hard work and high expectations can have on our mental and emotional health. At the end of this episode, our contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan, will share her thoughts about this interview, a commentary about rebounding from failure. But before we get to all of this, we open up with a trip to the past. It's a story about how Sangu, as a child in Ghana, found his way to Harvard. It's a wonderful narrative filled with history and heart, beginning with a pamphlet, a university president, and an inspired five-year-old boy. Hi, Sangu. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's my pleasure. It's always, always great to be connected to my wonderful alma mater. Speaking of your alma mater, you tell kind of an origin story about um, when you were five or six years old, knowing from that point that you wanted to go to Harvard. And I want to hear that story from you. Sure. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a funny story, you know, because I, you know, I, I learned how to read when I was really young. I was, I think I was like two, three when I started reading. And so my father at the time, who is a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a doctor and a human rights activist. And at the time he was working with some colleagues on this, which was novel at that time, the idea in the 70s and 80s of health as a human rights, which they were really pushing. 
And there was some there was some faculty at the now the Chan School of Public Health that they were working with. And uh, uh, so he used to get some materials from there. And I remember one time seeing Harvard University on on uh, I think on, on on one of the materials and asking what university was. And he explained that that's where you go and, and you become smart. And I asked what Harvard was, and he says, why? Like, you know, his eyes open, and he goes, no, that's where you go, and you get really smart. Um, and so I, uh, of course, I was in nursery or kindergarten at the time, and the head of my school was the, you know, we had a headmaster, a headmistress, right? And so I wrote a letter to the headmaster of Harvard um, uh, uh, saying that, you know, I'm, I'm, my name is Sangu, I'm, you know, I'm five, I live in Ghana, uh, I'm told this is where you go to get really smart. I'm smart, but I want to get really smart, so on and so forth. So I I I I, I give a lot of pressure to to my dad, and he he mails he exasperatedly mails the letter. So we don't hear anything for about I think six or eight months or so, and then I get a letter back um, from Neil Rudenstein, and so I kept in touch. I kept writing all the way through Larry Summers, and. The best part of this story, I'll tell you, is that um, in last year, in February of 2020, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Department of African and African-American Studies at Harvard. And at this ceremony last year, I got to meet Neil Rudenstein for the first time in person. And I got to connect with him over the story and we took pictures. And it was it was a very, very emotional moment for me because it, it came full circle. Did he remember it? I don't think he did, uh, but he was he was very like touched by the story and we hugged and it was it was great. This was pre-COVID, obviously. Yeah. Okay. So you got to Harvard and pretty early on, you start your own nonprofit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, um, I mean, look, one of the greatest things about Harvard for me really was uh, the inspiration to pursue social and economic entrepreneurship. So what happened to me my freshman year? There were two people um, who ended up changing my life and, 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 and inspiring me to, to start these organizations. The first was my roommate. Um, so my, 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 uh, there, there was a, a, a gentleman, Daryl Fington, who grew up in inner city Indianapolis. And, you know, we, we connected from pre-frosh and we spoke, he told me about his experiences, you know, with, with, you know, uh, violence, um, drugs, uh, and all the, the, the terrible things that he saw growing up. Um, and I had told him about my experience of seeing, um, some of the uh, scourges of civil conflicts when we had the Liberian and Sierra Leonean civil war. And because of my family's human rights work, you know, we, I grew up with refugees from Sierra Leone and Liberia. I told him about some of the challenges with underdevelopment and, and so on and so forth. And so we, we both uh, promised to each other, we're like, we need to do something to help our respective communities. Um, and that led us to a journey of, uh, you know, we started College Bound to help inner city youth get into college as under uh, PBHA, still running. Um, and then we started what's now Clean Aqua, which ended up being a, a water and sanitation project that has now worked in 160 communities and helped bring uh, water and sanitation to over 200,000 people. Um, so that was that, that, you know, I ended up writing my thesis um, at Harvard College on that, and it became a big part of my life. Yeah, so instantly... 
I think just like being a college student, I'm so curious what that process looked like um, starting all of this in college, um, you know, from learning the procedural tasks to like being taken seriously by adults you're working with and whatnot. Was that a challenge? Um, What did that look like? So I think that there were a couple of things happening that helped, right? So part of it was I was so excited, (laughs) right? I was was so excited. You could literally see the passion oozing out of my pores. Um, And I think that there's something infectious about positive energy and excitement, right? People just you know, it, 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 it fills the air with, with so much positive vibes that people are attracted to that. And so I did not find that uh, people didn't take me serious. I found that people were excited because I was excited. Um, and I also think that the advantage actually of when you're, you know, and I saw this, the difference as an alum, uh, you know, you contact people, some people will be helpful, some people may not. Um, but everybody wants to help a college student, right? And so I actually found that, uh, and this is why I tell people in the college all the time that take advantage of this time to reach out to anybody and everybody, right? Because everyone will talk to you because you're, you're, you're a Harvard undergrad. And once you graduate, they may not. So, so definitely take advantage of that. And we reached out to everybody. We, I mean, we we spoke to everybody and it was, um, I think part of that naivety was also helpful. We just, we just thought, hey, we're excited about this, you know, uh, of, you know, and, and, and it, it worked out beautifully. Your thesis about Africa's growth, how did that develop? So that was actually a very cool thing where, um, you know, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who at the time was the chair of the Department of African and African-American Studies, she came up with a brilliant idea um, called social engagement. And social engagement became this track that she created in the department. And it was really simple. It said, uh, you know, instead of us learning theoretical stuff inside the ivory tower, why don't we uh, figure out the implications of what we are studying on the lived experiences of people, right? And so it was a way in which you, you would take what you're learning, you'll take it into the field, you will engage with communities and and, and there's a duality there because on the one hand, you, 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 take, you take what you're learning into the field, but then what you're learning in the field will also in turn shape what you're learning in the classroom. It transformed my life. And, and it's, it's, it's so funny, I'll tell you. Um, when, you know, I first came to Harvard pre-med, like most, uh, uh, most uh, good African kids, you come in, you're pre-med, you're going to be a doctor. Um, and when I switched to... Uh, economics, and I, you know, I decided to then do African and African American studies and economics. I will never forget uh, a lot of my family back in Ghana just couldn't understand. I remember there was one uncle who said, I, "I just don't understand." He left Africa to go to America to study Africa, like he was just <laughs> he just didn't understand why. I mean, and then he was so angry at me that I, I. Um, that I, uh, I that I wasn't going to medical school, and uh, you know, he would say that there are only four uh, options: um, uh, either you are a, a doctor, you know, an engineer, a lawyer, or a fool. So in his uh, in his calculus, I was definitely a fool. <laughs> what does yeah. he say now? 
<laughs> I think I, I I think he's gotten over it. I think I think uh, 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 three Harvard degrees and an Oxford degree later, he's figured out I'm doing okay. I'd say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so another thing is that while you're working on these projects, you had this sort of philosophical shift that you talk about where you were in Ghana at a community meeting and you asked if there was a single thing that I could do for you, what would it be? And the answer was, we want jobs. And that kind of changed the way you view things, you know, about economically empowering people rather than just giving handouts. I want to hear more about that. And I also want to hear about kind of, you have this shift in mind, how long did it take for you to kind of act on that and adjust the way that you engage philanthropically accordingly? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it really, that, that, but, and I'll never, I, I, I still, I still replay that incident in my head several times. So, so this is a story that happened as I, as I, you know, my freshman year, right? Where, when, when we have this community gathering in Ejimante in Ghana. And I fast forward to about 2014. Um, uh, so 2014, I'm in London and there was an interesting discussion uh, between um, the, 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 the one of the top guys in AI He's the, I think he was a founder of, is it DeepMind? I think it's DeepMind. And next to, to this founder of DeepMind was uh, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, who is uh, a, a Japanese-British novelist. He's, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. They get into this debate about artificial intelligence and how, and of course, the founder of DeepMind is talking about artificial intelligence and how it's going to completely transform our world. And, uh, and Kazuo Ishiguro was uh, frowned. Right. And uh, and he interjects and he says, but but is that a good thing? And and is there something to be said about the dignity of work? Right. And I remember at that time in London, as soon as he said that, it cast me back to freshman year. Right. 2006, it cast me back to that conversation with this young man in Egemante, who also was was talking about that exact same thing, albeit in a different context, about not wanting a handout and wanting jobs, not just because of the sustainability of that from an economic perspective, but also because of the inherent dignity in being able to work. Um, and, and, and so for me, um, on this journey of trying to provide opportunities for people, and in trying to economically empower the marginalized, it's not just about creating, uh, it's not just about bridging the gap, right? It's not just about giving people uh, economic empowerment. It's bigger than that. It's also about creating dignity, giving people dignity. Yeah. It, it also, it makes me think of that um, saying, if you give a man a fish, you can feed him for a day, but if you teach him how to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. The kind of the whole theme, it reminds me of that. Absolutely. But you just need to make sure that where he's fishing from has fish. If you've already depleted all the fish where he's fishing from, then you're not really doing anything. Yeah. And you get at that in your book too, that the biggest problem is human capital, but you also speak about, you know, financial capital and, and that being a real problem as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Your active work on the ground for Clean Aqua involves 
both of those things. You're teaching people how to maintain the systems as well as helping to build them. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yes, of course. So look, with, uh, with Clean Aqua, we, we realized from, from all the research we did that um, one of the leading causes of infant mortality for children under age five actually is, um, uh, comes from lack of uh, uh, access to clean water and safe sanitation. Right. Um, I mean, you're talking of in the order of over two million kids a year die from that. Right. It's, it's, it's unconscionable and it's also avoidable. It's not like some rare form of cancer where we don't know what, what to do. It, it's very clear what to do. So that, that continues to devastate me. Right. Just that idea. And so what we do when we go in is we, we put in place um, the water infrastructure, which often involves us building a borehole, putting a, a pump. Sometimes, in some cases, you might have to put a filtration system, depending on the quality of the water, to make sure that, all right, they now have access to water and it's very clean water per WHO standards. So that's a big part of our intervention. But we wanted to make sure it was sustainable. So we, would, we created a human infrastructure to manage that. These water and sanitation committees um, uh, train them equip them, let them open a bank account where everybody makes a little bit of a contribution. Um, I actually, uh, uh, this year, went to visit the first community where we did this project, and it's still ongoing. They still have these things in place. And the beauty is once you create that sort of human infrastructure, they're able to use that to do other things. So there was one community where we did that, and they said, hey, we're doing this water infrastructure. We've already come up with a program for people to contribute. Why don't we use the same uh, model and, you know, we need to build a, I think they wanted to build like a nursery for the young kids. And they did that, right? Leveraging that same structure. And so that's, that's, that's kind of uh, the long and short of how we've been operating in these communities. Yeah. And that speaks to what you were saying earlier about, you know, empowerment and dignity. Um, it provides all of that as well as kind of just like the basic ability to, to build and grow. I, I want to note also for listeners that um, you came to a community where someone had already set up the infrastructure, but it broke and they didn't, they couldn't fix it themselves. And, and is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where, <laughs> this is why it's so important to take a holistic approach to things. Right. And this is why um, it's important to take a multidisciplinary approach and why when you go into any community and you want to do any intervention, it's first important to go and to learn, right. To humble yourself and to learn. When we went there, there was a well, right? There was well infrastructure that the, the, from a pure economic analysis perspective, what we should have done, the most cost-effective thing would have been to just rehabilitate the well. But that would have been foolish. Why? Because uh, at some point in the 90s, um, a girl with severe mental illness unfortunately fell and died in the well, right? And social and cultural mores and norms were so strong that no one would ever drink that water from the well. And so we would have gone in and we would have invested in all the rehabilitation we wanted. They would never touch the water in that well, right? And so it just shows why it's, it's really important um, uh, when you're doing interventions to actually understand and to make sure that there's community buy-in, right? That it's not just an imposition of the intervention, but you actually have the community, you know, it's a demand-driven methodology. So all of these narratives are really ones of success. Um, and 
you know, the, the change you have pushed forward. Another question that I, that I have, uh, a topic I want to talk about is kind of like the idea of failure in, in business and, and other walks of life too, because it's, it's inevitable. I mean, when you have so many initiatives and so much that you're doing, like you're going to fall sometimes. And so I'm curious to hear about that too. Yeah. I mean, look, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in fact, I'm glad you brought this up, right? Because I think that it's it's something that um, we need to do a much better job of, right? Which is normalizing failure. Um, and it's not something that I think we're, especially at Harvard, it's not something that I think we're well-equipped and it leads to um, uh, mental health struggles, uh, which I faced um, when I was back at Harvard for, for graduate school, where I had um, a major... Uh, a project I was working on with GPI just, uh, you know, just it became a, a total disaster where, I mean, this was such a major project. It was a $12 million project. Um, it was a done deal. I had off takers, I had investors, I had, I had like everything was all set. We had started a project. And then last minute, the anchor investor basically died before the funds were wired. And it just started, uh, precipitated what became a disaster for the project. And then there were some macroeconomic challenges, et cetera. Cut a long story short, project became a fiasco. Um, and, and in all of that, it, I, you know, I ended up getting anxiety. I ended up getting severely depressed and I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I could not talk to anyone about it. Um, and so, um, you know, since that experience, I've, I've uh, fortunately, I was able to to get through it uh, with the support of some wonderful uh, friends. I went public. I gave a TED talk about this, and I've since become a very passionate mental health activist. Um, but I'm glad that those conversations are are changing, right? And that we're we're now creating situations where we have to realize that look, we we don't all have we don't always have to be superwoman and superman, right? And and it's okay to fail. And, uh, and being, you know, being vulnerable, uh, does not make us weak. It, it makes us human. Yeah. You, you said that, um, at the start, you didn't feel comfortable telling anyone. Was that kind of just the shame surrounding it? Yeah. Look, it was a shame. It was the stigma. It was toxic masculinity. It was the erroneous idea and, and, you know, my show emotions, which was just absolute nonsense and foolish, um, and so I was, I was trapped by all these ideas and these, uh, uh, these, these tropes, these the, the toxic masculinity ideals and, uh, and, and the stigma, the stigma was so overwhelming. Um, the stigma was incredibly overwhelming that I, I, I just didn't, I couldn't even entertain the idea. And quite frankly, it was, it's, it's, it's one of those things where in my imagination, I thought depressed, anxiety, no, 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 no. Those are, those are things white people feel. You know, as a as an African man, I cannot be depressed. It's an oxymoron. And of course, that's absolute rubbish. Um, but that that's and I'll tell you, I'm not alone. That's what a lot of people when you look at the research, you see that statistically um, I, th- these ideas persist in a lot of uh, minority communities and a lot of African communities where um, there, there, there isn't really a lot of room to process uh, emotions, especially for men. Yeah, you talk about sort of the the growth and progress that you want to see at Harvard do you also kind of hope to bring that back to you know some of those mental health efforts on the continent or for students there 
have you done anything on that front or hope to do anything on that front? Yes. Yes. So I have, you know, there's, um, I'm on a couple, I'm, a, I'm on a number of boards, uh, um, on the continent, I'm on the board of Ashesi University, which is an incredible world-class university in, in Ghana, uh, uh, Pan-African University. Um, and and at Ashesi, we've made huge, huge, huge inroads when it comes to mental health. I mean, it's it's something that I've been passionate about on the board, and I'm very proud of the school for what it's done. And uh, and I look forward to actually doing more um, in that field in, in, in the coming months and years. I'm really glad you brought up Ashesi. And I know you write about Ashesi in your book, and it, it seems awesome. I, I know that we don't have a lot of time. So I want to close kind of with a theme that, that links to this topic, as well as the broader topic of growth in Africa, entrepreneurship in general. Um, but I know that to you, kind of inspiring a generation of young people, you know, it's, it's, it's important to you, maybe one of the most important things. So what is a message that you would impart upon, you know, young people? Yeah, so um, message for young people, I would say three things, okay? The first thing really is be kind to yourself. Um, and because I think that I worry a lot uh, because I think that especially in the social media age where everything is TikTok and Instagram, and I know I'm sounding like a grandpa saying that, um, but, but um, uh, I think, I think, I, and I recognize this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on, um, I'm also on the, on the board of the Petty School. And so I see a lot of the data um, that comes to us on, on what students face. Um, and, and, and you see it across the board. There's students are feeling more stressed now, right. And are feeling more pressure. Um, and so I think it's just important to be, to be kind to yourself, um, and to, uh, to take care of yourself, which means, you know, uh, sleep. Um, if there's one regret I have, quite frankly, looking back, um, all of the things I did, I, I just didn't sleep much. Um, and you know it, you know, it's that it's the big heart. I, mean, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a thing we brag about at Harvard. Oh my God, I only got three hours of sleep and we say we're pride. It's terrible. <laughs> like, it's absolutely yeah. terrible. We should not be glorifying sleeping for three hours because it's horrible for your body. So let's, let's be kind to ourselves. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's eat well. Let's exercise. Um, the, the, the second thing I would say is really take time to, 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 to build community um, and be intentional about it, right? And, and get to know people, get to really know people and their stories and get to know people across the board, right? So not just, uh, uh, you know, get to know, you know, your fellow students, get to know faculty, um, get to know the staff and build genuine relationships with people. Because I, I think that that's, for, for me, that has been uh, the most, uh, uh, you know, hands down, the, the greatest uh, contributor to my success really has been people, people who have gone above and beyond to help me. And then the third thing I would say is, uh, I think, you know, it's, um, I would really encourage people to, give themselves room um, to figure out uh, what, what, what their true passions and dreams are. Um, and it's difficult because, you know, you get clouded with all sorts of things, what's considered prestigious, what's not. And sometimes you're not careful. You, you end up going down this rat race. 
um, without really figuring out, well, what, what do I really, what truly do I care about, right? What, what, what are my real passions? And, and I think that, 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 that self-discovery will be instrumental. It will completely transform your life because um, I feel really fortunate. Every single day I wake up, I am thrilled. I'm thrilled. I mean, I don't have good days every day. I mean, sometimes you have your down days. But in general, I'm thrilled because I love what I do. I really love the work that I do. And I'm, I'm so fortunate and blessed to be in that position where I, I find the work I do to be very meaningful and to be very fulfilling. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for being here and, and talking with me today. It was a great conversation. And I'm so happy to have met you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to Sangu Delhi for joining us today. Now it's time for a few words from our contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan of One in a Billion, our production partner and sponsor of Where Are They Now? Thank you, Gemma. When I listened to the first part of Sangu Delhi's stories, success after success, like graduating from Harvard with highest honors, starting projects to help inner city youth, launching Golden Palm Investments, getting featured in Forbes, and getting a book deal, I initially felt this was unreal. Who lives a life with no setbacks? Who can live a full life without failures? I asked the question about failure. Sangu was quick to say he was glad that topic came up, and so was I. You may remember from the interview that Sangu gave a TED talk about his struggle with depression and anxiety because he had never really experienced failure until one day a big business deal went horribly wrong. Everything fell apart when the principal investor died suddenly before the funds were wired. It was to Sangu a mecca failure and he didn't know how to talk about it. He felt alone, anxious and deeply depressed and his friends soon rallied around him and helped him get the mental health counseling he needed to get back on his feet. Well, personally, I too have had many moments of distress due to failures. Failure to get a promotion, failure to get my dream job, failure to get noticed in the workplace, etc., etc. But I've never experienced depression until the sudden death of my mother more than 25 years ago. She was generally healthy, went home after tea with friends one afternoon, then suffered a major heart attack that night. She died in the car while my whole family in Hong Kong, my dad, my brother, sister, were there rushing her to the hospital. The sudden death of someone, a parent, a friend, a loved one, or an investor you rely on for success, as in Sangu's story, is traumatic. It does not leave you the same person. It changes your outlook on life. It darkens your world. I felt deeply depressed for weeks. Then I got laid off from my job. New management took over the TV station I was working at and the show I was producing for got canceled. Everyone on that show with me was let go. Like Sangu, I didn't know how to talk about it. I felt like a failure. Only a few close friends knew what happened. I did not seek counseling. I prefer to think things through on my own and to seek lights praying in the dark. I got down on my knees and cried out to God day after day, night after night for weeks. It helped to pour out grief, tears and fears out of my body. It helped that I felt empty and prayed before the Lord. 
It also helped that years later, I began writing about my experience. Writing, praying, and confiding in close friends have been my way to rebound from distress, trauma, and failure. When Sangu said, we need to do a better job with normalizing failure, I can't agree more. One way to start is to feel safe to talk about it. This podcast is a great example. We feature alumni who can share the experiences of trauma and failures, and we can form genuine friendships through our common struggles behind our success. What is your struggle right now? Feel free to send us your comments. I love feedback. This has been Where Are They Now? Produced by myself, Gemma Schneider at WHRB News in Cambridge in collaboration with One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan. The music for our show was created by Dash Chin of WHRB News. You can also learn more about our podcast partner and sponsor, One in a Billion Productions, by checking out oneinabillionvoices.org or Mabel's podcast, One in a Billion, an interview show about Asian culture and society, one person at a time on Apple iTunes, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Where Are They Now? Tune in for another episode of Where Are They Now? on WHRB 95.3 FM at the same time next week, same place. In the meantime, learn more about our podcast and catch up on old episodes by visiting our website, whrb.org. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or PRX. 